chapter 9. Okay, George, Jim, are you there? Chapter 9 is the story of the healing of the man born blind. Now, in this story, in this story we have joyine narrative artistry and dramatic skill at, at its best. For the narration of the miracle Jesus is presented is indicating the meaning of the sign as an instance of light coming into darkness. That's the point of the story of light person light coming into darkness. It's a story of how a man who sat in darkness was brought to see the light, and only physically, but spiritually. It's a story of how a man who sat in darkness was brought to see the light, and only physically, but spiritually. It's also a story of how those who thought they saw, namely the Pharisees, were blinding themselves to the light and plunging into darkness. So it's a story of how those who thought they saw, namely the Pharisees, were actually blinding themselves to the light and plunging into darkness. The story starts in verse 1 with a blind man who will gain his sight And it concludes in verse 41 with the Pharisees who have become spiritually blind. So one, there's the story of a man born blind regains, regains his sight. And those who are the physical sight become spiritually blind at the end in verse 41. Now, when you look at the whole chapter, the, the story of the miracle is brief, very, 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 very brief. John's main interest is in the interrogations that are involved in the story. This is kind of a story you could put on as a one-act play, drama back and forth with different characters. Really would uh, you know, draw an audience in, and uh, there's all sorts of irony, humor, everything else. John's main interest here is in the interrogations. In each one of the interrogations, the former blind man's statements show a deepening knowledge of Jesus. So each interrogation, the fellow who is formerly blind comes to a deeper knowledge of Jesus. So for instance, when questioned by neighbors, he says only that his benefactor was a, uh, quote, man they call Jesus. That's in verse 11. That's his reaction, explains to his neighbors. Okay. I want to help him was this man they call Jesus, in verse 11. Then when he's interrogated by the Pharisees, he confesses that Jesus is a prophet. That's in verse 17. Then, in the final questioning by the Pharisees, he becomes an ardent defender of Jesus' cause. He says what Jesus has done shows that he is from God. 
33. And finally, in response to Jesus' own interrogation, man comes to see Jesus as the Son of Man. Verse 37. So it begins with man they call Jesus, then he develops understanding of Jesus as a prophet, and as he's from God, finally he is the Son of Man. The cure man's faith increases just like the Samaritan woman's faith increases in chapter four by degrees. Okay, she starts to you know, you're a prophet because you have to tell me this, and you're the Messiah. So while the man born blind is gradually having his eyes open to the truth about Jesus, the Pharisees, or what they later called the Jews, are becoming more stubborn in their failure to see the truth. story you see that in their initial interrogation of the man they seem to accept the fact of the healing so in verse verse 15 the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight he said to me, put clay in my eyes, I washed and I see. So they're acknowledging the fact that, you know, how did he receive his sight? So they're, you know, accepting the fact that there was some kind of a miracle here. But some are offended by the fact that he's broken the Sabbath rules. They say, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So there's division among them. So they accept the fact of the healing initially, but then there's a division and dispute among them. Some are offended by the fact he broke the Sabbath. Others seem to be willing, uh, you know, open to be convinced. What they want to do is hear the former blind man's own evaluation of Jesus, verse 17. So again, they said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. In the next interrogation, though, those who are the most hostile dominate the scene. In the beginning, they're kind of 50 50, half and half. Some willing to accept the fact there's a miracle, just don't know how it is, who did it. But then the second interrogation, you have those who are very hostile to the man, the ones that prevail on the scene. They now doubt the very fact of the miracle by trying to show through the man's parents that he never was blind. The Jews didn't believe that he had been blind and received his sight. Now it's totally different. It's just that, how did you receive it? Now they don't believe. Until uh, so they call the parents of the man who received his sight and ask them, is this your son who, whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know this is our son who was born blind. How he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He'll speak for himself. 
So as the parents said this because they feared the Jews, so the Jews had already agreed that anyone should confess him to be Christ, because he put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So they don't, uh, they now doubt the very fact of the miracle by trying to show through the man's parents that he never was blind. Then in the final interrogation, all interest in finding the real truth has now disappeared. All they're interested in doing is trying to trap the man by having repeat the details of the miracle. You know, just like, you know, police interrogate somebody, they go back in and see if the story is going to be the same. Right, so. Second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give God the praise. You know this man's a sinner. He answered, Well, he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know, oh, he's blind, now I see. He said to him, What did you do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already. You wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become his disciples? We bought him saying, You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but it's for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And I said, why, this is a marvel. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. You know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Ever since the world uh, began, has it been heard that anyone uh, opened the eyes of a man born blind? This man were not from God, he could do nothing. He answered him, you were born in utter sin. You teach us, and they cast him out. So they try to get him to repeat the details of the miracle there in verse 27. But regardless of what he says about the miracle, they refuse to accept Jesus' heavenly origins. We don't know where he's from. The legal procedure resorts to vilifying the witness. Into the story of the Pharisee, Pharisees who sat in judgment at the miracle are judged guilty by Jesus later on in 39 and 41. All right, so. Uh, what happens here is that through the interrogation scenes, any doubt about the healing is excluded. Unbelief is shown to be inexcusable. The attitude of Jesus' opponents becomes more and more rigid, with it's exposed as malice and blindness. So in the very end, you know, they, they start attacking him. If you can't defeat the argument, what do you do? You go ad hominem, attack the person. That's what politicians do. You can't destroy the guy's platform or his record. Attack him. Just create some kind of uh, doubt or suspicion in that. So, uh, so they refuse to accept Jesus' heavenly origins, and they resort to vilifying the witness into the story of the Pharisees who sat in judgment on the miracle are judged guilty by Jesus. Jesus judges them guilty of blindness. Now here, three times the blind man, who is truly increasing in knowledge, humbly confesses his ignorance. In verse 12, 25, 36. They said to him, where is he? I don't know, he says. And then verse 25, We know this man is a sinner. He answered, whether well, he's a sinner, I don't know. And 36. 
you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? So this man claims he doesn't know in each of these instances. And then on, on the other side, three times the Pharisees who are plunging deeper into ignorance of Jesus make confident statements about what they know of him. They are so sure this man doesn't know, and he honestly admits it. We have the Pharisees saying, all they know. Uh, others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. You know, this, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. That much we know. In 24, so the second time they called the man of the line and said to him, give God the praise. We know this man is a sinner. Verse 29. Regardless of saying, you're a disciple of Moses, disciple, his disciple, we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. You have the contrast there with the man who is deepening his knowledge of Jesus and admits his ignorance. And those who are really ignorant about Jesus are claiming confidently that they know about this. So the blind man is really one of the most attractive figures in the Gospels. This confutation of the Pharisees in 24 to 34 is the most cleverly written dialogues in the New Testament. You know, it talks about, do you want to be his disciple? You guys coming to believe in him? It's like sticking the knife in them. That's the last thing they're going to do is believe in Jesus. Now, the question arises, is this miracle story an adaptation of a primitive story through selection and emphasis? Is it a vivid creation of imagination or an imaginative remaking of synoptic material? <clears throat> One of the things you have to be aware of is the fact that the tradition that Jesus healed the blind is well attested to in the writings of the synoptics. Such healing has no background in Old Testament miracles. But you have pictures of those who are spiritually blind having their eyes figuratively open. Yeah, that's part of the prophet's picture of the ideal of Messianic times. You have a number of healings in the synoptics. Healing of Bartimaeus, who sat by the roadside near Jericho. Two blind men in Galilee. Blind man who's healed in stages with the use of spittle. Remember, he just sees figures faintly, then he sees it more clearly. They have another blind man in Capernaum. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel in Jerusalem, he talks about the different things that Jesus did, and he mentions healing the blind. As similarities between the different synoptic gospel accounts of healings and John's account are very few. So John is definitely not dependent on any single synoptic account. There's no convincing evidence that John is dependent on any combination of details from the various synoptic stories. The most striking and important features in John are not found in the synoptic stories. Remember I told you in the beginning, what does John do with miracle stories? He builds them into dramas. 
So what is missing? The man was blind from birth. John is the only one that has that. Notice. He uses mud. Only John. He kneels through the water of Siloam. Only John has that detail. All the interrogations about the miracle. You don't have that, any, that Jesus cures, and that's it. There's no big who uh, are about the whole thing. There's no questioning of the person's parents. So these particular details are the very things that serve John's theological interests. So it's hard to prove scientifically that they weren't invented for the sake of pedagogy. John may have dramatized these things by bringing out those <coughs> factors. And some of the things that point to the authentic character of John's story are the use of spittle, the brevity of the miracle narrative, the local information about the pool of Siloam, And also the acquaintance with the fine points of the Sabbath rules, that you're not allowed to do this on the Sabbath. Now, one of the commentators on uh, John's Gospel, in section C.H. Dodd, he's an English scholar, uh, and I mentioned him before, remember, uh, told you how book of uh, John's Gospel is divided into two sections. Brown divides in the Book of Signs, Book of Glory. Dodd was the first one before him. He talked about the Book of Signs and the Book of the Passion. And Brown came along to the Book of Signs, Book of Glory. This is him. He makes this comment. He said, behind chapter 9, which is the story of the healing of the man born blind, lies a primitive story of healing preserved only in the Johannine tradition. Evangelist saw in this story an ideal example of a sign that might be used to instruct his readers and strengthen them in their belief that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he elaborates the story with this goal in mind. Now, what are the what are the lessons taught by the story of healing? First of all, the triumph of light over darkness. first lessons. Just as the Old Testament prophets accompanied their spoken word by symbolic actions, which dramatized their message, so also Jesus acts here the truth of what was proclaimed in the previous chapter. I am the light of the world. He made that proclamation. Now he's demonstrating by an action how he is the light of the world. The second lesson taught by this story is an apologetic lesson. In addition to the light, darkness, sight, blindness drama, the second purpose of the story is apologetics. In the initial interrogation of the man by the Pharisees, we hear the things that bothered the authorities about Jesus during his ministry. The problem is violation of the Sabbath. That's found in the synoptics as well. But unlike chapter 5, where the Sabbath motif 
dominated the story of the healing of the paralytic is only incidental in the development here in chapter 9. In the subsequent interrogations of the parents and of the man, the Sabbath question fades into the background. That doesn't become the issue at all. The real issue then is whether or not Jesus has miraculous power. And if he does, who is he? So at this point, we move from the arguments of Jesus' ministry to the apologetics of the church and the synagogue in the early days of Christianity. The debate over Jesus that had begun when Jesus was alive has continued into the evangelist time. So in verses 28 to 33, the violent polemic between the disciples of Moses and the disciples of Jesus, something that really was uh, prominent in the late first century. Well, they talk about uh, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. This man, we don't know where he's from. The idea of disciples of Moses were the traditional Jews. You know, those who believe in Jesus were the opposite. So the polemic there. The authorities of Jesus' times are referred to as the Jews. And the we that's spoken on the lips of the Pharisees is really the voice of their descendants, namely the Jews at the end of the first century, who once and for all rejected the claims of Jesus of Nazareth and regard his followers as heretics. So we are disciples of Moses, really is talking about the first century Jews, opposed to the Christians, they're no longer considered, they've given up the faith, they're heretics. The we on the lips of the man born blind is the voice of the early Christians who regard the Jews as blinding themselves to the obvious truth implied in Jesus' miracles. So you have here You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses, first century Jews. And as there are the people back at the time of Jesus. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And I said, why, this is a marvel. You don't know where he comes from? And he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. Who is the we there? Early Christians. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to them. Ever since the world began, it's been heard anyone open the eyes of man born blind. This man went out from God, he would do nothing. So in that argument there, you have the, the polemic of the apologetic. The stance of the traditional Jews who reject Jesus as the Messiah, they're disciples of Moses. We on the list of the man born blind is talking about the early Christian who accept Jesus as the Messiah. See the truth that's wrong. So the question of the Messiah is at the center of the debate between Judaism and Christianity. Official Pharisaic Judaism not only argues vigorously against Jesus' Messiahship and his divine origin, but they also fight the followers of Jesus with external measures. What external measures do they do? Well, 
Any defectors are excluded from the Jewish religious community, so become subject to social sanctions also. Verse 34, his parents said, fear the Jews, because the Jews agree to anyone who confesses him to be the Christ, he was put out of the synagogue. And that's something, again, later, not at the time of Jesus, but it was later uh, in the first century. So it refers to the attempt around the year 90 AD to drive out from the synagogue Jews who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah. During his ministry, Jesus and his disciples didn't meet with this kind of opposition in the synagogues. We can't imagine that during Jesus' lifetime, there was any kind of formal excommunication leveled against those who followed him. Matthew talks about uh, being flogged in synagogues. That was only part of the future fate of Christian missionaries, not at Jesus' time. There'll come a day when they will you know, do this. Actually, the apostles depicts the apostles entering synagogues, even the temple without any suggestion they have been excommunicated. Even the description of Jesus' followers in verse 22, as those who acknowledge him as the Messiah, is really too formal for the ministry of Jesus back at that time. So here the gospel shows us the ultimate development of the hostility that was incipient beginning in Jesus' lifetime. Aaron's fear of speaking reveals the dilemma of those practicing Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but who now, at the end of the first century, find they can't any longer profess this faith and remain Jews. Now, through the example of the blind man in verse 34, the gospel appears to, to them to allow themselves to be excommunicated. Why? Because Jesus will seek them out as he sought out the blind man in 35, verse 35, and bring them to complete faith. So, the, uh, <coughs> Jesus seeks out the man, he says to him, just what I believe. So, in seeking out the blind man at near the end of the story, Jesus is really giving a lesson, a modern example to those Jews or willing to be excommunicated. You know, even if they're thrown out, what is Jesus going to do? He's going to seek them out to bring them back to complete faith. So you have, uh, first of all, the first lesson there is light overcomes darkness. Second, you have this apologetic thing that really the arguments are really not arguments between Jesus and the people of his time, the arguments of the followers of Jesus the Christians and the successors of the Jews who were opponents of Jesus. And also another lesson is a baptismal lesson. The story of the man born blind appears seven times in early catechum art. Catacomb art, I should say catacomb art. And she usually is an illustration of Christian baptism. Now, those of you who are involved in RCA, this will make some sense to you. Chapter 9 served as a reading in preparing converts for baptism. When the practice of three scrutinies or examinations before baptism developed, 
The ninth chapter of John was read on the day of the great scrutiny, the final scrutiny. When the catechumens passed their examination and were judged worthy of baptism, lessons from the Old Testament concerning cleansing water were read to them. <clears throat> and then came the solemn opening of the Gospel book and the reading of chapter 9 of John with the confession of the blind man, I do believe, Lord found in verse 38, that served as the climax. After this, the catechumens recited the creed. So this, uh, you know, in the scrutinies, what gospels do you have? You have the first one is the, first gospel? Yeah, the scrutinies. Woman at the well. Second gospel is the healing of the man born blind, and the final one is Lazarus. Those are three gospels. Power of Jesus to give life through baptism, okay, through sight, and then through life. Enlightenment, eternal life, enlightenment, and life. Now, the use of, gest of uh, gestures by Jesus in chapter 9 in John's Gospel, the anointing, and the use of spittle, later became part of the baptismal ceremonies. Now, the use of spit or spittle, it's, you know, you can do it, but, you know, it's optional. Most people, because of diseases that are germs don't do it okay uh now granted that the church has found a baptismal lesson in the healing of the man born blind does this baptismal interpretation also reflect the evangelist's own intent did he intend this to have a baptismal significance although jesus's gestures are described the man was healed only when he washed in the pool of siloam so you have a washing here. That's what brings about the miracle. Unlike the healing of the paralytic in chapter 5, the story here in chapter 9 illustrates the healing power of water. The name of the pool where the healing uh, water was obtained means one who has been sent, Siloam. Clearly associating the water with Jesus. In John, Jesus is the one who was sent by the Father. It was the water from this same pool of Siloam that was used in the ceremony of tabernacles. Jesus is said by way of replacement back in chapter 7, he was now the source of life-giving water. So the pool of Siloam, one who was sent. The man who was sent by the one who was sent by his Father. So you have uh, that. And then also, you have fundamental symbolism, the stress on the fact that the man was born blind. This comes to a climax in verse 32, and he says, it's absolutely unheard of that anyone ever opened the eyes of a man born blind. Since the man's physical blindness is so clearly contrasted with the sin of spiritual blindness, evangelists may be playing on the idea that the man was born in sin, 
sin that can only be removed by washing in the waters of the spring or pool that flows from Jesus himself. So like baptism and original sin. Yeah, the idea of removing sin, right? But then also they bring up this understanding that Jews thought in the beginning of the story that, um, we'll go into details about that, that anybody who suffered from an infirmity, etc., what was the reason for it? Sin. Either the person did it himself or maybe if they were born with this, well, that was the sin of their parents or grandparents, etc. That Sin was the answer to any imperfection or anything that wasn't whole or complete. But, so you have these lessons, a baptismal lesson, you have a apologetic lesson, you have a theme of light conquering darkness. But also the term enlightenment is used by New Testament authors to refer to baptism. Enlightenment is opening someone's eyes to something, okay? St. Justin in the second century tells us that the washing of baptism was called enlightenment. The mention of anointing may have baptismal significance. First letter of John speaks of an anointing that comes from the Holy One. That anointing was baptism. Second Corinthians chapter one speaks of anointing and the giving of the spirit. Okay, Paul associates baptism with the death of Jesus, Romans 6, 3. We were baptized with him, also died with him. In chapter 9, verse 3, we're told that the healing of the blind man is going to be a revelation of God's works. Verse 4 insists that this work must be done now while it is time, while it is day, for night is coming. Necessity of taking advantage of the day comes from the fact that death is already casting a shadow over Jesus' life. Chapter 8, we learned that the Jews were trying to kill Jesus. And with this threat, imminent death in mind, Jesus feels he can't delay his healing of the blind man through the waters of Siloam. In chapter 11, as Jesus' death draws closer, his life-giving activity increases. So if there's a baptismal significance in the healing of a blind man, symbolism has as its background, Jesus is approaching death. All right, now, just going to any questions so far, I'm gonna go back into uh, verse by verse, uh, commenting on the meaning of some of these phrases and, and questions. Any questions before I move into that? Okay, verse two. Okay. Passed by a silver man blind from birth. Verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. Okay. Who committed the sin? That's the typical reaction. They come across a situation with a man born blind. Obvious conclusion for Jews was sin is behind us. Despite the book of Job, the old theory of a direct causal relationship between sin and sickness was still alive in Jesus' time. <clears throat> this question is similar ones, like in Luke chapter 13, verse 2. Uh, remember when the, uh, the tower fell down and killed all the Galileans? 
Luke says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans for they, because they suffered this? So if an adult got sick, the blame could lie on his own behavior. For the problem of baby born with an affliction, that presented a greater difficulty. The book of Exodus, chapter 20, provided a possible solution. Quote, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Some rabbis thought that not only could the sin of the parents leave its mark on an infant, but the infant could also sin in the mother's womb. And that happens, I mark. But you also remember, go back to the Old Testament uh, with Solomon and Bathsheba. Okay. Uh, what happened? Bathsheba became pregnant, right? Not Solomon, but David. David, David, Bathsheba. What happened? Put his her husband on the front line. Yeah, and then the What happened to the baby? Died. The baby died. Who's responsible for that? The father. Sin to the parents, right? This was, uh, you know, it was a, an adultery situation. And one of the punishments that David grieved over was the fact that this child died. And how do you look at it? It's a punishment from God for his actions. So this was you know, the mindset of the Jewish people. And this is the reason that this particular question uh, is asked by the disciples then when they come across this man. Now, Jesus' attitude toward the relation of sin to sickness can be seen in chapter 5, verse 14. He doesn't accept the thesis that because a person was sick or suffering, it was a sign that he had committed sin. But he also indicates the connection in a general sense between sin and suffering. Now, we as Christians have developed that theologically. We see suffering as a consequence of original sin. And also that some sufferings are a consequence or a penalty of actual or personal sin. You know, what happened to us is because of the choices we made, the actions we took. Okay, that's the end. That's an answer for that. So Jesus' healing miracles in the Synoptic Gospels were part of his attack on the sinful realm of Satan. When you freed a person from sickness and illness, remove that person from the grip of Satan, right? enable them now to live a free life under the grace of God. Uh, back in chapter 5 there, the chronic invalid bore his suffering as a punishment for sin. And Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well now. Sin no more, and nothing worse befall you. Not doing sin, but just saying, you know what, you know, live a good life. You know, that uh, see that uh, nothing more worse before you. Okay, now Jesus says, okay, his answer is, he says, not the sin of the man. He says it was uh, the, so that the works of God might be made manifest. So when he was asked about the cause of the man's blindness, Jesus answers in terms of its purpose. The rabbis used to speak of God giving human beings punishments of love. And we talk about the what? 
chastisements which, if suffered generously, would bring a person into life, long life and rewards. But that's not Jesus' line of thought here or in 11.14 with Lazarus. Instead, it deals with God's uh, use of history to glorify his name. So you go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 9, which Paul cites in Romans, chapter 9, where God tells Pharaoh, this is why I spared you, to show you my power, so that my name may be declared through all the earth. That Jesus' works are really God's works is implied also in Matthew and Mark. So here he's expressing the idea that comes through in John that in Jesus, God accomplishes his works. Other places is the Father works through me. You know, uh, what I do, the Father does, etc. God works through Jesus. And through these works, he glorifies himself and his son. So the actions of Jesus have a revelatory character. They reveal something about Jesus and about God. So what he's saying is that this man's condition, you know, don't worry about who's to blame here since it's an opportunity or a moment for God to reveal his power, to reveal who Jesus is. He's the one through whom God works. All right, just one or two more things. Also, in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We, there, we must work the works of him. That probably is Jesus' way of associating his disciples with him in his work. It's not talking I must do this. We must do this. You are part of my mission, my work, my ministry now. Jesus wants this association. You also, where do they bring that before? Remember in the story of the Samaritan woman? Talks about the one who sows, the one who reaps, etc. Happening on the same day. The one who sows is reaping. So they're associated with the work of Jesus. Jesus is sowing them. See, they're reaping and they're working with it. Chapter 5, verse 5. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus' self-description here may come from the book of Isaiah, where the suffering servant is described as a light to the nations. Verses 7 and 8. Verse 7. Jesus tells the man, go washed in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors of those who had seen him before as a beggar said, is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, he's like him. He said, I am the man. They also wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, you have a similar, uh, maybe, echo in the minds of Jewish people when Jesus uh, tells the man to do this. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 10 to 13, this is one of the Gospels you have at the beginning of Lent. 
during the weekdays. It's where Elisha refuses to heal Naaman, the Syrian. He goes to find the prophet, and Naaman refuses to do it. But then he sends him to go wash in the Jordan River. Naaman is fuming because it, I made this big trip. If you didn't tell me to go wash in this you know, dirty Jewish water, I could have washed in the best pools back home. Okay. Now, in Luke 17, Jesus doesn't heal the lepers immediately, but he sends them off to the priests. They're healed on the way. Also, the royal official, chapter 4, verse 50. The blind man obeys on the basis of Jesus' word, showing his readiness to believe. So, he's asked to do something. He isn't cured of his blindness, but he said, do this. Okay? And by obediently doing what he said, he receives the healing. Just like Naaman received the healing when he did what the prophet Elisha told him to do. So you have a similar thing here. So this would be an echo of uh, that particular incident in the Old Testament. Okay, and the last thing I'll just mention here, it says, isn't this the man who's seen him before as a beggar? Okay, that's probably a reference to Bartimaeus, or not uh, reminding us that Bartimaeus was what? A blind man sitting by the side of the road. Jesus came by, he yelled out, Lord, have mercy on me. He refused to be shut up. Okay. All right, I'm going to stop here. I'll finish this last little bit. Uh, next class. Next class, we're going to do chapter 11, Lazarus. <clears throat> we're going to take a little, little, little look at the uh, trial scene of Jesus in the Passion account. And then we'll do the resurrection appearances, particularly the one with Thomas. Make sure there are two things I had printed for you. One was uh, the crucifixion scene. The other is the resurrection appearances, comparison between Luke and John. Okay, make sure you bring them to class. We'll come over, okay? Okay, have a good week. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Father.